How do you lead when you don't have the basis on which to make decisions? In this podcast, I talk to David Gregson about leading in uncertainty. David is an extremely experienced businessman. He has sat on more than 30 boards and he's chaired at least half of them. Some of those companies include Phoenix Equity Partners, which he co-founded, the Lawn Tennis Association, and the largest social and healthcare charity, CGL. David works in the UK, but he lives in Holland. His commute has been somewhat curtailed, as you can imagine, in the recent months. Welcome, David. You and I have talked about leadership for a few years now, and I wonder what have you been seeing in Holland that we could potentially learn from as leaders in other countries? I think what is what is amazing about the current environment is that it's very easy, given that all countries are facing the same issue, to compare and contrast as to what others do at the same time. Hmm. Uh, and I, throughout my career, I've been very keen to learn from others. I think the first thing I'd draw out, Lloyd, is the way that the Netherlands first approached the lockdown. Hmm. And it's clearly seen in the messaging, which has been consistent and unchanged in the Netherlands. It's tweaked a little bit in Britain. But very much in the press conferences and the messages that surround there's been a very important couple of differences. Hmm. First is that in Britain, of course, as you well know, we've had the um, stay at home protect the NHS and save lives. I mean, carefully crafted uh, trilogy has had quite an impact, but quite directive and importantly on a sign, a rather garish sign, yes. we probably agree, uh, on the lectern in number 10. Yeah. By contrast, in a much more understated and empowering way, hmm. the Dutch have kept the same message, which is only together can we beat the virus. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, provides a framework for empowering people to do the right thing. There are very, very few rules here in the Netherlands. They feel as if there are lots of rules in the UK. Mm. And many of those rules have been sort of do not do this and do not do that, <laughs> yeah. which I think some people have found great to start with and now quite restrictive and quite confusing when we cross borders, of course, because we can still cross borders from England to Wales to Scotland. And uh, just this morning uh, in the news, there were examples of police turning away thousands of people who believed that they could travel into Wales because we can travel for exercise and getting very frustrated that you can do some things in some areas and not things in others. What do you think leaders of organisations can learn from the reaction to these differences uh, that you've seen in national government? Well, I think that um, perhaps what you describe with that Welsh example, and as you, as you pointed out, I was chairman of the LTA, and there's sort of funny stories about whether you can play with your butcher's uh, son on a Tuesday when it's raining in Scotland, because <laughs> there are so many rules, does it fit the rule? And this gets to the empowerment point, and perhaps the leaders... What I think has been inspiring about the Netherlands is it has provided a compass, but not a map. Mm. And I think Britain is trying to provide a map with all the various contours in it that will help you navigate what's right. But in, in the Netherlands, it's a compass. You're given the compass, and the compass has only two rules. And the two rules are you have to stay one and a half metres away from your next door neighbour, wherever you are. Mm. 
But beyond that, there is utter freedom of movement. And secondly, you cannot go anywhere near a care home. And that therefore leaves the individual member of society very much in control of what they feel is right. I think the same applies to companies. You know, I'm working with several companies at the moment. I sit on several company boards. The ones that are prospering are the ones that are providing the framework and recognizing that they don't have all of the answers as to how to navigate through a crisis such as this. And therefore, the framework is the key and encouraging and empowering ideas from wherever they come from in the company is is such a valuable resource. Have you got some examples of a framework in a company? You know, what, what exactly would that look like? Well, I think that uh, the framework, you know, I'm working with a, a, a tiny uh, business which has reimagined the future, but set against a very candid assessment of what the assets that it has are and how best to exploit those assets. And if you literally focus on the assets that you've got, how they compare against your peers, and what you can do to exploit them in the world that you imagine in the future, it gives you the framework for focusing on only two or three things. But in order to do that, the very best leaders, in my experience, have to somehow give themselves the headspace to be able to think like that. Because of course, in a drama, like this, there's so many things coming at you. It's utterly exhausting. Mm. Um, and you've somehow got to be able to empower those below you to take day-to-day decisions. You step back and you give them the framework that I've described. And I've seen that in action at the moment. I think empowerment is really interesting. Uh, I think whenever we see major drama, human nature leads you to want to blame somebody. And, of, of course, it's quite hard to blame a virus for this because it's it's unseen. You know, how can you take things out on a virus other than finding a vaccine? But I think the sentiment in the UK is we need to blame someone for this. Now, is it the government for not getting things right? Is it the next door neighbours are breaching certain rules or whatever, rather than this empowerment of, of taking responsibility? Do you see a link between responsibility, empowerment and blame? I do, actually. And one almost uh, the um, other side of the other. And I do watch the blame um, in in the UK. It's partly related to the rules and therefore this sense of fear, which is to some extent the opposite of empowerment. But I think where where the crossover with the world of business and what I've learned is aligning interests. And the interests of the Dutch population are very much aligned around beating the virus. Only together can we beat the virus. Mm. So everybody feels they have a part to play in that overarching vision. There isn't a hint of blame anywhere in the country for anything because we've all got the same objective. The same applies to companies. I know only too well when things get difficult in companies and you get internal divisions because you're not all aligned around a common purpose. The same, exactly the same thing happens. And one feels that a little bit in the UK, that there is, it's the combination of fear. It's staggering to see so much discussion in the British press about what is going to be said in the inevitable review when it's all over. 
Mm. I'm not entirely sure why we're talking about reviews when it's all over, when all our efforts should be together in trying to beat it at the moment. There'll be plenty of time to worry about what we could have done better. We should be spending our time not thinking about things that we did wrong, but things that we can learn from others to do better. Yeah, because in, in, in many ways, okay, how many months, we're well, sort of four months into this, this is not a short-term challenge. This virus is not going to go away in the next few months. We're going to have it for another year or more, and it's very uncertain. And thinking about uncertainty, how have you experienced the best leadership in dealing with uncertainty and giving confidence in a climate of enormous uncertainty? You've already alluded to the fact that I was the co-founder of a private equity group and private equity groups thrive on, on information. And we're very good at analysing information and looking for trends and, and, and seeing, and seeing uh, uh, what actions to take on the back of that. Mm. And this is where the compass comes in in this particular crisis because, of course, the information is incomplete. I was looking at the, uh, you know, the, the, the R rate. Mm. You know, it, it's a measure. It's the only measure that we appear to have <laughs> other than the outputs and outcomes of, of number of infections number of deaths, and... Yeah. Uh, and deaths, and it's a measure which is currently between 0.5 and 0.9. I mean, who can navigate their way around something which is as as as, as wide as that? And mm. the minute it becomes 0.7 to point to 1.2, uh, then who knows what you do with that? Because if it's on the wrong side of the one line, you're, you're, you you know you need to take different action. So I think that in this crisis, this is where the headspace comes in. As long as you've got the clarity of purpose of what you're trying to achieve, there's your compass. You get the best conceivable information that you can. You learn as much from what your others, uh, your your peers and your competitors are doing. I remember uh, Michael Downey, who was the chief executive of the LTA, he he used to say R&D, which we always think of as being research and development. He always used to call it rip off, rip off and duplicate. <laughs> and of course, there is something in that. You know, if we if, if you can look at what Germany is doing so well and its track and trace, which it undoubtedly is, and you can replicate that in the UK, mm. that will make up for a lot of the gap of the data which I have so constantly relied upon in my own career. I find ambiguity difficult. A lot of people do find ambiguity difficult. This is an ambiguous situation. All the more reason, therefore, to give yourself headspace as a leader, work out what's really important, and then focus on that. Really hard to do. How do you think leaders can work it out? Because, as you say, they don't have the data on which to make these key decisions that they're used to. You know, and even employing the very best consultancies, they can't go away and do analysis and say, well, this is the scenario that you need to pursue. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking about some of the major retailers that we work with, their assumptions of how many shoppers are going to come back into their stores when they reopen. I mean, it's finger in the air stuff. And actually, most of them have been pleasantly surprised, but they've been assuming things like, well, sales will be 40% of what they were at this time last year. They open the shops and all of a sudden 
they're at over 100%. <laughs> and then they're thinking, well, is this going to continue? How's the impact on the supply chain? It's so difficult, isn't it? And what's, what have you seen uh, that you consider to be best practice in, in leading an organisation when actually you don't have the basis on which to give people certainty? Well, I think that it comes back to this point about um, working out what's important. And I do think that reimagining the future in lots of sectors is going to become and already is fundamental. But in reimagining the future, that doesn't mean that everything that you did yesterday is going to be useless tomorrow. Equally, it doesn't also mean that everything you did yesterday is going to apply tomorrow. Mm. It'll be somewhere between the two. And, you know, I'm actively involved in a couple of universities whose business model is significantly threatened Mm. by this. There is vast uncertainty as to how many students are going to be willing to return to the UK, particularly from China and from other countries. And, you know, some universities are talking about a 30 to 40 percent income drop on a billion of revenues. Mm. These are vast shifts. Mm. So there's both the tactical short term as to what you can do to mitigate the risks of these vast shifts. And goodness me, you know, I was chairman of Let's Filofax when the iPhone came out. <laughs> you know, there's a business where we don't have to wait for COVID to look for examples or people who are on the board of... Eastman Kodak as digital cameras were coming in. You know, that you know, there are other examples of companies that you can learn from, not necessarily in COVID. And the ones that have really prospered and done well have have, have in my view at least, have, have distinguished between the short term tactical and the long term strategic. Uh, and being able to imagine what the environment might look like in five years' time and looking at ways in which you could prepare for that, mm. whilst also ensuring that the talent that you've got in the company is dealing with those shorter-term tactical issues, which are, in many respects, overwhelming, whether it's sort of the furloughing of staff, whether it's the redundancies of staff. Uh, but we see it with British Airways at the moment. Uh, I think there is a clear distinction between the very hard tactical issues of rebasing the cost Mm. whilst a very clear idea whether rightly or wrongly of what an airline in five years time is going to look like and they've already said in their view airlines will look considerably smaller they've got to think how that might look are you seeing organizations having a pool of people who are their sole responsibility is to reimagine future scenarios Yes. I mean, they have to be big enough to be able to have the resource to do that. Mm. And you have uh, colleagues that you can trust to deal with those real short term tactical issues. Mm. Then I think that is a very effective way of looking to the future. Now, in a crisis like this, where nobody has all of the answers, I do believe that diversity of thought is essential. A careful use of talent of people with diverse views and diverse experiences which can look at these issues and problems in very different ways will lead to better solutions and i see this actually in in the netherlands which is partly a reflection of the of the political environment here Hmm. but because it's a coalition government 
it's got seven or eight parties in it. Mm. It is by definition diverse in its thought process. It therefore thinks longer term in a very phased and planned way because of that, because it's a constant level of compromise between different points of view. And of course, what we have in Britain is to some extent politically the reverse of that. A lot of observation is just a very small inner group um, around Boris's table and not even all the cabinet is involved. And so somehow in a crisis, if you can create that diversity of thought so it doesn't become unwieldy, but does bring different reflections to bear on an imponderable issue, that's a great way. I'm wondering whether that means in in many companies that actually you've got to make some significant change to the leadership team who may have been there for some time and have become wedded to the current ways of doing things. Uh, and actually whether you need an influx of people almost from outside the industry who who aren't tied in to the historic ways of the systems and the processes and and the market positioning have you seen that happening in some of the companies you work with oh for sure and you know for sure for me reassessing your talent and making sure you've got the talent in the right places today as opposed to yesterday might require very different um, uh, tasks for different people. Yeah. Uh, and in order to encourage that type of thinking, you know, I participated in a, an offsite for a, for a business I'm involved in last week, and we specifically invited a consultant in from the outside to look at us and tell us what they saw looking from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And there was something of a discussion on groupthink. Were we all thinking too similarly? And of course, when you're in a groupthink environment, you don't see that. It needs somebody from the outside to tell you that. And then suddenly, when you look at it through that lens, anything is possible. So I do think assistance, whether it's facilitation or a consultant coming in or a coach, a brilliant coach like you, Lloyd, some external ingredient uh, that can assist you to, to look at yourselves in a different way is immensely valuable. I wonder what you've seen with the people at the top, and let's focus on the CEO, because we've talked about how they have to give clarity without knowing the answers. On the one hand, you could say that makes them look weak, but you know, I'm hearing people talk about the benefits of showing a humility or a vulnerability at that level. What are your thoughts on those criteria being essential for leaders in this time? I think the willingness to be seen to be vulnerable from a leader today is utterly empowering. It's hugely uncomfortable when you're the person showing that vulnerability. I've been in a position a couple of times in my own career where that's where that's happened. I didn't enjoy exposing myself to vulnerability. Mm. I didn't intend to expose myself to vulnerability. Mm. But the impact of it was utterly immense and immensely powerful and positive. So I think a leader who can admit that they don't know all the answers, who can then surround themselves with people who also have to admit they don't have the answers, but that they might have a perspective that would be valuable to the group. I think those are the cultural 
elements that will make for great solution creation. They won't always be right, but mm. they will be well thought through. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights in this crazy and fascinating time for leaders. And hopefully you'll soon be flying back to the UK. Well, thank you, Lloyd. Look, actually, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. You're a brilliant interviewer. And as for flying, I suspect that I should be taking the train. And that's, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> Thanks, David. Brilliant.